friends, hello and welcome back, welcome back to the board game interview room. I am Paco Garcia, your host, and this is a podcast in which I am the lucky guy who gets together with absolutely awesome people from the board gaming world who are going to, well, do awesome stuff and few people do more awesome stuff than the gentleman that I am with today, who I know well, I am very fond of and has some really exciting stuff to talk to us about. Uh, Uwe Eicher from Academy Game, welcome back, sir. How are you doing? Paco, it's great to hear from you again, and it's great to be here. And as your listeners may not know, um, Uva is an old Spanish name for grape, and many people don't know that we're cousins. My full name being, of course, Uva Eichert Gonzalez. Yes. Um, so many people don't know that we are related and that we had the first, uh, you know, our we had the same father and uh, the same second mother. And I think we had maybe five of the same grandparents or so. I think so. Um, and how, how on earth you managed to get the looks whilst I got the, um, the nothing, uh, it, it escapes me. But yeah, you actually managed to, to be the, the better off part in, in this whole adventure. You know what? At least you can grow a really good-looking goatee. That is true. I have a very dense facial hair. Um, and it's the only place where it's very dense because it's definitely not on my head anymore. <laughs> you know, I literally can go a month without shaving and you may be able to tell that I haven't shaved. It's that bad. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, uh, um, oh, my goodness. You know, the problem is all day long I was speaking with my son and we speak, you know, German here and we speak the the South American German, which is, which is much German, some little bit of Spanish slang. <laughs> so I am envious of people who can have a good five o'clock shadow and look rustic and all instead of a, a baby-faced uh, guy with, with uh, pale skin in northern Ohio where we're finally getting some sunshine, though. So thank you so much for having me. And um, now that your listeners are totally confused... <laughs> We can continue. <laughs> yes, we, we can continue. And we can talk about your most recent project, which, as expecting, as expected, is actually doing very well indeed. Um, before we go into the ins and outs of Mare Nostrum, um, I'm very curious. You, you basically hit the nail on the head every single time you go onto Kickstarter. Firstly, why do you need to keep coming back to Kickstarter? Well, I've, I've kind of, you know, hinted on this before, if, if people seen some of the things I write and everything. We are a, a small company. We're not a huge fantasy flight or Osmodee or something like that. And we do games that are maybe a little more off the wall. Our games like Fief and Almari Nostrum, are wonderful games that we work years and years on to develop and, and make fun play so that hopefully players want to come back and play over and over and over again. We don't have the glitz of all these incredible zombie miniature figures and outer space ships and all that. We have to really rely on engaging gameplay. So a small company like ours, as I've said before, we have games that really we have to put a lot of time and effort into so that there is engaging gameplay, engagement between players, fast play, that there's little waiting around. So we really have to concentrate that we feel it is a game that we'd be proud to have on our mantle when our grandkids are looking at it. So we spent many, many years developing it. Uh, we put out the games and sell through wholesale mainly. And when you sell through wholesale, we only receive 34% of MSRP or manufactured a suggested retail price. So if a game sells for $50, we're only receiving roughly uh, $17 out of those $50 in the store price that the games get sold for. And out of that $17, 
We have to pay the printing cost. We have to pay the development cost, all our internal costs, the rent, uh, the years of development. And the problem with that then is, is that the margin is very, very tight. And on top of that, you throw on top of that then that you have to order five to 8,000 games. And those games don't get paid right away because a lot of distributors figure, ah, they have no problem waiting 60 days. They say net 30, but uh, we'll pay in 60. Well, here your money is tied up for nine, 10 months at a time. I have dealers right now I've been pursuing for six months trying to even collect money. So our money gets tied up for almost a year. And that is very tough because the money we do finally collect, over 60% of it goes for paying for the printing that we paid a year ago, the cost, the overhead, and if there's anything left over after we sold all the games, then we have to start a new game. So Kickstarter allows us, through the backing and really the generosity of these pledgers, to be able to get the money up front. We have larger margins so that we can make not, not only the games better, but then we have the money then to also continue in the development of the next games. So people are already realizing and seeing that Academy Games has much more ambitious release dates for our games that we've been working on for years and years and years. So not only do we have the Mare Nostrum that we are now have on Kickstarter, we have the Viking Invasions of England, which is an incredible game based on our 1775 Rebellion series. We just released two of our Conflict of Heroes series. We have an incredible space game, again, based on our 1775 series, where all the planets are moving on the board, the rings and everything, everything moves. Ingenious little game. We have um, expansions for Strike of the Eagle, which won Game of the Year in 2012, um, which is a historical game on the Korean War. We have so many really incredible games in development that we can now afford to do simultaneously, get good people into work on, keep the artwork going, keep all the quality where we need it. And without Kickstarter, a small company such as ourselves, we'd have no chance. Uh, we'd, we'd be very slow in development. We'd still keep our quality up, but we'd have a much slower release schedule. And we could not hire in really the skilled people that we would need to continue a good growth and a healthy growth plan for our company. So I, I hope that makes sense, that it isn't that we do Kickstarter because we're greedy and we think we can make more money. It is really, uh, for companies of our size, it is a heaven sent. It is, it, it is a really a change in the industry where we have a good tracker record with customers. People know they can trust us. They know they'll get a good game. And we can actually get it out in a more timely manner. And then secondly, also, it's opened up. It's been a marketing bonanza for us, for people who've never heard of our company, who go, wow, this sounds like an interesting game. I'm going to give it a try. They like the game, and then they buy our other games. So that's why we are really on board with Kickstarter. We are planning on doing at least 30% of our new releases through Kickstarter, and then um, the rest of the 70% continuing in our normal fashion so that we can keep a good, steady cash flow going. Because I hate to say it, we love games. We're, 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 it's our life. But unfortunately, the world runs on money. And there are no for the games out there. You have a huge amount of competition from that point of view. So yeah, uh, but I, I guess what people um, what, what people find difficult to grasp is the fact that just because you've made three or four hundred thousand dollars or seven hundred thousand dollars on one project, that doesn't mean that all that money is going to go into your pocket. Most of that money is going to be absorbed into the production costs of the game that you've just funded. Exactly. Let me let me go. For example, now with with Mario Nostrum, because I know the numbers straight off. We're asking sixty five dollars for the game. Uh, we give free shipping in America, which is on average costs us fourteen dollars to ship because it's a heavy game with everything else in it. So we're down to, and then we have to buy the box, the peanuts, all the packaging, which is another roughly dollar fifty. So we're well in the high forties by now. 
Kickstarter requires that we have our 5% plus another roughly 3.9% for the credit card processing. So we lose roughly another 10%. So around the $39 level. Then we have our advertisement and all the questions people are asking. I have two full-time people I have here answering the hundreds of emails, keeping the artwork going. That costs money. Then we have the development costs, the royalty costs. By the time we're done, we're literally working on a 14% margin. So 14% of our 650 is money we take in that we can then use for future development of games, paying our own salaries, keeping the lights on for fixed overhead. So 14% of $65 is roughly what is that right around nine dollars yeah. that goes very very quickly away four thousand times nine dollars that's what thirty six thousand dollars mm -hmm. my math is correct <laughs> so thirty six thousand dollars for all this work for months of of the kickstarter work for the two years of pre-development of the game and we are very fiscally conservative. We are very good with money. And that's why I think a lot of people who go on Kickstarter, they have huge successes, but then after another game, they disappear. And that's because they do not realize or they don't know the long-term repercussions and costs involved with not only running the Kickstarter, but also the fulfillment, the customer service, the... The, re the returns, the people saying we never, not returns, but saying we never received our game. This game came in damage. Oh, we were missing this and this in part. It's incredible. Um, and it always seems to be the same people who always are missing parts. Mm. Uh, but you know what? The customer's always right. So you have to send some new, even at just one little cube, takes someone 15 minutes to go through the paperwork, to package the shipping by the time you're done, that's $8. Again, boom, out the door. People think, oh, I only need two cubes. That's nothing to a company like that. It costs us $8. So new people to the industry, they think, oh, Kickstarter, I made a lot of money. I've got it golden. Be very, very careful. Really plan out your money. You really have to do a lot of pre-focusing, pre-planning. Um, and then, like for FIF, we had no idea how successful it would be. We had so many stretch goals going in that, again, not only cost more money to print, but the development time, the editing time, the art, things like that. And I'm not complaining or anything. I'm just saying most people have no idea the amount of, of resources Kickstarter requires to do a good job. Now, many people do Kickstarters. You never get their phone number. You don't have their emails. It's hard to contact them. It's hard to get an answer. So we may be a little different because we put pride in that. If anybody calls, we have a person here. Boom. Our phone number is everywhere. You email. We try to email back unless the email goes in spam. I apologize. It happens. Um, we try to make our games the best quality. We always pay with, you know, to get black core card stock and everything. So we do pay a little more. So maybe... Others find cheaper ways, but the costs are there. So, um, and we always augment all shipping. All American shipping's paid. Then for European, we eat roughly between 12 and $15 per game shipped because we have to ship things in from America or overseas. We're not a European company. So we have to eat all the VAT taxes, all the import taxes. These are all things that we have to pay for out of our pockets that many customers do not realize we have to pay. Mm. Um, that's why, sorry for being so long-winded, but that's why we thrive on Kickstarter because the end result is that we may not make more money than going through full distribution. It's probably about the same. The difference is that we get our money ahead of time so we can pay the printer instead of having to borrow money and hope we get that money back within six months to nine months if the game is successful. That makes perfect sense. Now, 
let's go into Mare Nostrum uh, because the game uh, it, at the time of recording this podcast uh, listeners there's still 26 days to go uh, you were asking for $15,000 you are just about to get 300,000 and counting so this game is going to be huge um, because the amount of uh, stretch goals that have already been unlocked it's, it's incredible um, the game again is a historical game which you are specialized in cool. and, and, and really really very good at uh, tell me a little bit about how it plays and what is Marinostrum all about Mare Nostrum is a empire building game. And I have to say, it's a semi-historical. I mean, we bring a lot of history in, but as a lot of people know, take over an empire and you build that empire to win the game. And the empire can be the Roman Empire and the Carthaginian Empire and the Greek empires that all were kind of around the same time. But then we also have the Babylonian Empire and the Egyptian Empire which were a thousand years earlier. And many people have made us very well aware that it's kind of silly to have a game with all these great empires at the same time because everybody knows that didn't happen. We know that, but you have to make an interesting game because quite honestly, when each of these empires were at their peak, they really didn't have much competition. It would be kind of a boring game. Yes. we, you take over an empire, and in this empire, you're trying to grow it. Mare Nostrum is a reprint of a very successful and popular French game that was popular in the uh, late 90s and I think 2001. And it was, though, primarily a game which you could win through military conquest or building the Great Pyramids. We've now been working two years with Asynchron Games and with the author, Serge, and we've now changed it and we've totally redone the game. So now you can concentrate on trade and commerce, or you can concentrate on culture and politics, or you can concentrate on the military like before, and then you can concentrate on the Great Pyramids. So there are four ways to win now. And it just adds so much more to the game. Now it's not a game of like the old civilization building. You have your legions and you're kind of trying to expand and just hit heads. Now there's just all the subtleties where you can go the trade routes, expand your trade caravans, become the leader in the trade area, which gives you powers to determine how many trades and goods people will trade during the game. Or you can go after the culture and the temples and the religion. And then you're the person who determines who builds in what eras, in in what what turn order, and things like that. So the game has taken on just phenomenal dimensions of of a beautiful game that really has taken into account the development of the Euro board games. This, This refinement that's happened over the last 20 years. And we've built this all in. And the last thing that we really concentrated on is to make the game very smooth running, fast running, that there's no downtime for any of the players, that there's no waiting, that everybody's always engaged, that there's interfacing and intercourse with trading, bargaining. Um, It's much easier and more streamlined than FIEF, which is our FIEF France 1429, which is a super subtle, devious, incredibly wonderful game. With Mare Nostrum, we go in a little different direction where you're building your empire and it's more negotiations of, hey, listen, let me do this. I'll do this. There's no marriage stabbing in the back, smiling at the at the person and tapping on the shoulder while you're totally screwing them over and making a deal with another guy. This is much more the classic modern now Euro game type of game. Now... Some Euros, uh, some Euro games have a problem when you have with three players. And this game, although you have already unlocked the two-player stretch goal, but uh, some games can suffer from having a power struggle when you have three players. How do you sort out that problem with with Mare Nostrum? Oh, we played a three-player game two days ago here in the company again. 
and it is wonderful. We hit some incredible stretch goals. Um, the first stretch goal was something that we'd been working on and we'd been trying to put in, but the costs are very expensive to make multiple boards. And what we did is we added a leadership track board. And this is brand new to this game so that people can constantly see who is where, who is doing what. Then we also added a Heroes and Wonders board. And these two boards are different widths. And when you play with four players, you take the leadership track board and put it along onto the map board on the right-hand side. And whatever is not covered up, the rest of the map is played by four players. When you play with three players, you also then include the Heroes and Wonders map. And these exactly fit on the map, so whatever is still showing on the map is playable. So we've scaled the game wonderfully on the map for three, four, and five players. Now on top of that, each culture has certain strengths and weaknesses. So the Greeks start out with many cities and temples and their culture is very high. And that culture gives them certain benefits. Whereas the, Carthaginian, the Carthaginians have trade routes very well developed and marketplaces. So that their markets and their resource gathering is very developed. Whereas then the Romans, they are a little balance of everything. They have very good legions. And Caesar gives them a little benefit in land combat. So we have a very good balance. And the game has to be played very, very smartly for anybody to win. Because everybody is strong in a different area. You can't just go on and try to roll over someone with military when that person leads in culture. Because they dictate when you build in place. And these subtleties in the new game design is phenomenal because it just adds such richness, which you can teach the game in three minutes. But once you start playing, you're going, wow, now I understand the importance of maybe not just concentrating on building legions. I may want to develop my influence in adjoining provinces. I may want to expand my trade routes so that... I keep up in the trade area because keeping up in the trade area can help me in my culture and my military ambitions. So we've really taken a lot of the issues that other games have, and we play so many games, and we've really analyzed and looked at it, and that's why it takes us years to develop games, just so that we don't face these problems. So for the three-player game, we played one the other night. We had a blast. At Origins, we had people who were quite skeptical. We told them we'd be there. They said they've played Mari Nostrum 35 times in the last two years. Love it, the old game. They sat down, and we're gonna, they're going to post on, on Board Game Geek. He just emailed me today with a full write-up. They played the game in an hour, 20 minutes, came up there gushing. They said it was so streamlined. Things went so smoothly. Everybody was engaged. They were into the game. They didn't even notice that an hour had gone by. And then the game was over, and they wanted to play right away again. And if, if veterans and real game critics say that, I think we've done our job well. Yeah, that is certainly quite, quite an endorsement, I have to say. Um, one of the things I noticed in, in the game, you have 13 different resources. Aren't that too many? Well, what makes the game so interesting is this. And let me, I'll, I'll teach the game here in two minutes. Okay. In the game, you are expanding your caravans. And the caravans are always placed next to a certain type of resource. And these resources then you collect in the collection phase. And they can be resources you gain through your caravans. Or if you're going the other route with cities and the culture, you're getting coinage, the gold coinage and the currency. Then you can also expand and make your caravans more effective by building markets, which double the amount of resources you get in the goods. Or you can go build temples, which increases all of the income, gold income you get from your cities in each province. So the next phase is that the head, the, the leader of the, in the trade and commerce, he will then say to everybody, okay, everybody, you're going to have to offer between zero 
and five resources to other players. Why this is important for you to build new markets, for you to build new caravans, for you to build new triremes, the ships so you can expand quicker, you need to pay with resources. But you can only pay, each resource has to be different. So you need three resources to build a new caravan or to build a trireme or to expand your influence or to build a temple or a market you need six different resources so the key is you need different resources but these resources are concentrated in different parts of the world map so your iron ore is in southern and central europe your olives and things like that are in southern greece and going into the middle east and so the 13 different resources are scattered about which again gives you the incentive to maybe grasp a little further than you would want to in order to expand your trade routes and influences into provinces where you'd normally not go or to try to trade to get these resources and that is the beauty of the game because if you put out bad resources you know nobody wants how you get your resources is that the culture or the trade um, master he may then choose the first resource from any player that he likes now that player that you chose from he gets to choose next of anybody's resources and so on so if you put out real duds that you know nobody will like you may sit there and nobody's choosing your resources and you don't get to choose from others but if you put out too good a thing then that may get you in trouble too because you're giving your opponents just too nice a goody that they may be able then to build too good a building or too nice uh, a resource that you don't want them to. Because the better the building, the bigger the thing, the more type and more resources you have to pay. Does that kind of make sense? It it does. Yes, that 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 helps a great deal. Because my 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 first impression was okay. Um, thirteen resources. Analysis paralysis is going to um, settle in because I may have too many decisions to make, and that's that's going to bring things to a halt. But that seems like the the whole resource thing is a lot more streamlined than I thought it was going to be. It's wonderful because you know your main things like your market, your your uh, caravans, putting influence in another province because you cannot build or even send your caravans into a adjoining province until you have influence there to build your legions these are army men to protect your your provinces to build fortresses triremes to sail over the oceans these all cost you three resources different resources so you start the game usually with with in your three provinces with maybe five different resources and that would only allow you to get one maybe two items if you can trade for it. And that's why certain times you may want to expand quickly. But then there's really neat things you can do. You may try to invade another person's province. And when you invade a new province, you can do one of three things. You can either plunder one of their buildings or areas, like a city or a caravan or a market or a temple. And when you plunder, it comes off the board, it's gone, and you immediately get a resource that this caravan or city is associated with. But if you have longer range terms, you may think, hmm, I don't want to plunder because if I can take over and influence and get control of this province, I don't want to be burning to the ground and ruining the infrastructure. So you may take a bigger risk and say, hmm, I instead am going to occupy these areas get the income in the next round, or you can even try to occupy the influence marker, the person who controls the area, their control marker that's in there saying it's theirs. And if you can last through the next round's movement in battle phase and you still occupy that, then it changes to your color. Now you control that province and all the incomes from the trade caravans and the cities and the temples go to you. So it's always one of these, it's a tough decision. I'm in. Do I think I can hold it? If I can, I'm going to try to 
conserve everything. Ich will alles schonen. I, I don't want to destroy it. But if I think, oh boy, this guy's going to hit me back hard, I may want to just go plunder, ruin as much as I can, and pull as many resources to myself and hopefully get out of there in one piece. So it, it's a really very interesting, fast moving game. There's not much combat in the game. The combat is just one round. And often, like with triremes, you can move into a sea with an opponent and you decide, hey, I like it here. I'm not going to fight him. I'm going to stay here. Now, your opponent may not like it and he can maybe go against you on his turn. But let's say you are the culture minister, the head and leadership. You can think this through and say, okay, I'm going to let my opponents do his moves first, and then I can go last in order to then move my triremes into the seas he occupies, and he cannot react to it. Or you may think, no, I better go first so I can go occupy and influence a province before other people do. So there's so many choices can and people can make, and there are hardly any rules. It's a fast, fun game with so many different decisions and choices to make. In terms of all the expansions and add-ons that have already been unlocked with the Kickstarter, do they add a much greater deal of complexity to the core game rulebook? No, it, and we always strive not to do this in most of our games. Um, with Mari Nostrum, we've already unlocked 23 stretch goals. And, you know, many people's stretch goals are incredible, but they like an extra figure. Hmm. And they don't add anything to the game itself. It's just like a, oh, here's another fighting unit. And it's a cool miniature and whatever, but eh, it doesn't do anything. As people know from our other uh, Kickstarters, our stretch goals are really thought out, usually additions to the game. We try to add incredible expansions. And Mari Nostrum, I think we have hit this out of the ballpark like we have with no other game. So far, we have had 23 stretch goals, of which three of them are major expansions, which we've worked years on. For example, the Syracuse expansion. If you decide to play with that, all of a sudden, objectives are introduced to the game. Now it says, let's say, if you start trade with maybe two different players or three different players in different provinces, you have met this objective. Now you get to pull a trade event card that gives you some advantage once during the game. In addition, this expansion gives gods and wonders that add to the trade gameplay. So you have like the granaries of Egypt or gods that help in trade. So all of a sudden now, if you play with the Syracuse expansion, the game takes on a whole new trade concentrated type of feel. If you go with the Jerusalem expansion, which was opened with all expansions that we, we'd been playing with and then added, that then opens up the politics and religion. And now all of a sudden it's the cultural aspect of the game takes precedence and objectives. Or if you play with the Troy expansion, it goes towards the military historical things. So all of a sudden, you can play with these expansions. You get a whole new dimension to the game with no added complexity. All we're doing is saying, hey, we're going to define some objectives that normally you wouldn't want to do. But if you would do these objectives and you fulfill them, then you get some advantages and you can – the game takes on just a flowering um, uh, scenery towards the game type of play that you want to do either concentrating on the trade, on the culture and religion, or the military. And what's even better, you can mix them. So some games you want to maybe do with the religion and the trade, or the religion and politics, or whatever, or the military and the trade. And each game, it just makes it expand and blossom so much better. So I am so excited about Mario Nostrum because it is a game that Euro players of almost every category will like to play. It is not a, unfortunately, these are very popular games nowadays. It's not one of these dungeon crawling, you know, meet monsters, hack and sack and go to the next one. 
This is a game of player interaction, building up your empire, deciding, oh, I'm going to go after the trade route and try to sneak in my victory that way. Or I'm going to go with culture and try to build the um, my, my culture and religious circles and try to win that way. Or another thing I haven't mentioned, you can then recruit or build wonders and heroes. And these wonders and heroes and gives your empire special abilities that others can don't have then. And if you mix different wonders and heroes together, you get really special and unique um, strengths that other people have to counter with other means. So every game is unique and new. And, and that's why I am so excited about our stretch goals, because they really do add an incredible amount of real, true gameplay to the game. Um, I have a couple of questions from uh, Tony Ortiz from Spain, who's uh, decided to back the project and, and get the game. And Gracias, Antonio. <laughs> he's curious. He wants to know what is the quality of the individual player boards going to be like? Are they going to be solid, rigid, or are they going to be um, cardboard and flexible? They are going to be exactly like our 1775, our Freedom Underground Railroad, our um, Fief France 1429 games. These are two millimeter thick core board with then a very nice backing on the back and full, full color front and back that have no valley folds. That means when they're spread out, they lay flat, they have a very flat surface and very thin lines where they were folded. Not these deep valley lines like your cheaper games like Monopoly and things like that have. Hmm. And he's also asking if the rules are available anywhere to take a look at before the project ends. Um, I am working right now, and I was hoping to get it done before we went to Origins, and it, it just didn't happen. I feel bad about it. And I'm glad I didn't, because we demoed Mari Nostrum so much there that I really got a feel that we were going to do a video and hopefully have had the video done before I left for Origins on the gameplay, the rules. Um, I don't like publishing the hard copy rules to, to, to um, the supporters yet because we they're developing all the time. And what happens then is we ask people not to, to spread them out to know that this is in development rules. And unfortunately they get shipped all over the world, posted everywhere. And then they're not like what the game finally has. And then we get a lot of complaints. Hmm. What I'm going to be doing is, and I'm almost done, I'm finishing it tonight, and I go into the recording studio tomorrow, I changed it. And what I'm going to be doing is we're going to be, it's all digital, video created, and I'm going to be playing the game as you, the player. And you will be playing Egypt. And you're playing the game, and as you're playing the game, I'll be teaching you how to play. And the four other players, of course, it's all in the video, you're going to be playing the game as Egyptians and see what all the other players are doing. And I'm going to go through two rounds of the gameplay. And that should take about 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, you will not only have learned the rules, but you will also have learned some of the subtleties of the gameplay that when you read rules, you really don't learn the subtleties of gameplay until you play a game or two. So I'm trying to combine it all and really give a unique type of a player um, a appreciation of learning the rules and the game flow and play all at the same time. That being said, if any of your listeners um, want to get a copy of the rules, they should email me personally at my email address, and I will gladly send a copy if, though, in the email they promise to keep these rules to themselves and not pass them on to anybody. And I'll gladly let them read the rules because the rules have been done. Um, and they have to realize, though, that these are not the final rules. Uh, we are getting so many great ideas from Kickstarter supporters. And people go, Uva, and there's a little change in, in, in the conversation. They go, Uva, why do you do 45-day-long Kickstarters? And I go, the main reason people think that we do it to get more income, and that's not the case. Mm. We get just as much income 
in in 30 days because in the middle of a Kickstarter, it is always very slow. Right now, we're at a very slow plateau. We're not advertising or anything. We're starting our advertising on Board Game Geek and in Facebook starting this coming weekend. That's when we're going to really start the push. But why we do it is we listen to all the comments of people that we have, and we develop based on their comments. And that's why we're playtesting almost every night. That's why almost all our internal people and all of our designers and all of our guys from all over the world are working day and night processing these ideas, getting the artists in, in, in involved, changing, manipulating to make the game as good and better than it can. Because even though we're very good designers and we spend two years designing on this huge amounts of time and energy, when you all of a sudden get thousands of fans backing a project, and if you go in our comment section, they give us great ideas. So, for example, one guy complained, said, you know, he saw on the French video how the track board, he has fat fingers, and, and just the tracking counters were just a little too small, and he complained, it's too crowded. And we go, you know what? That could be the That could be right. So we halved the number of spaces instead of going for one to 20 that only goes to one to 10 and then you start on the bottom you flip your count around and it's on the 10th side but then we thought another guy came up and said you know what even better idea instead of making them square like you have them make them circular and make them wood so everybody can see from the side what all the colors are circular you can get your fingers in between all the different stacks easier and now that you've halved them make them twice as big great idea we're implementing this so many of these ideas if we made a very short tight campaign we couldn't really develop these as much as we do people said they'd love to see little plastic miniatures if we could add those into the game free and i go no that's definitely not out of the question because it costs so much money but we're going to now start an add-on and this add-on is going to be where people for inexpensive as cheap as we can make it can get 56 different buildings with the markets and the temples and the cities so that the board takes on a beautiful 3D look with the buildings in conjunction with the 3D um, legionnaire um, um, meeples, the triremes, the fortresses, and then also the camels. We're going to make beautiful little meeple pad camels to show the trade routes. So those players who want to have that full 3D experience yeah. Will you pay $25 more for all these customized buildings and all? We hope so. So we're listening to people. And this was not something we were planning because in FIF, the buildings made sense and added to the play experience. Mm. In Mari Nostrum, the buildings don't help the play experience, but they help the visual and the emotional buildup of the game. And so, yeah, we're going to go through the expenses. And we make no money on these add-ons, trust me. To make the molds, we have to pay like $14,000. You know, we get maybe 2,000 people supporting it. It, it, it. it costs us at least $6 a person for the mold fees to get the molding done, the boxes, the packaging, the extra shipping. We break even on it. But if we can make the experience better for our supporters, that's what it's all about. Because if we consistently make the experience better, then we consistently have successful Kickstarter campaigns the way we do. And, and that happens, you know, because my friend uh, Tony, uh, he is absolutely mentally in love with FIF and uh, he's got all the buildings and the coins and everything. And, and he does, I, I agree that he, he agrees that it makes the game a better experience. It's, it, it's, it's quite quite amazing how it changes the whole thing and it, it feels better to play the game. Now, Marnostrum is going to be uh, released on November this year, so you have a pretty tight schedule to get these things sorted. Now, the campaign is going to finish in the next 20 odd days. For people who will be able to take a look at the game in places like, say, Gen Kong or Spiel, will they be able to pre-order the game once the Kickstarter campaign is over? Yes, we always do that. And we give them the same deal like on Kickstarter minus the 
Kickstarter um, exclusive items because that's Kickstarter exclusive. But if they're pre-ordering and they miss the Kickstarter, we still give it to them because what we then do, let's say there were some stretch goals we did not meet, like in FIFA. We had a few stretch goals we did not meet. But because people were still ordering from us over that long time period where we're developing all these stretch goals, we actually started adding more and more stretch goals that we didn't advertise on Kickstarter into the game. So people will see if they really compare what they got in their game and what we showed on Kickstarter, they'll see, wow, you know, they never mentioned the stuff. That's because it was things we were planning on that we then met internally as more people added on after the Kickstarter. Unfortunately, those people, we could not give them the exclusive stretch goals. But you know what? They're very happy because we usually hit so many stretch goals that they can't get any other way that make the game really special. And in Mario Nostrum, that's definitely going to be the case. Hmm. Um, in FIEF, you can play the base game and add one or two of these these expansions to make it an incredible deep game. But in Mari Nostrum, adding on some of these expansions all, you'll want to do almost immediately because it again gives you, if you add them in your third gameplay, all of a sudden you're going, holy cow, this is like, a, this is like I had a nice flower and now all of a sudden I have a whole vase of flowers. So yes, we will continue to take a few stretch goals, but we learned from Thief, and um, we are doing this again in conjunction with our good friends at Synchron. As many people know, every one of our Kickstarters we've done with our good French friends uh, and our good Spanish friends, Masque Oka, mm -hmm. and we do a lot together because we all kind of fit together in our own special ways. Uh, the French are very good with the artistic and layout and everything. Our Spanish partners are very good with the strategy and everything. And we, as the German-English connection, are very good at keeping, trying to keep a schedule and pushing our partners to, gosh darn, meet the timeline <laughs> and meet a budget. Hmm. So they curse us out because they say, you know, we, we're pushy like Americans and too picky like Germans. But, you know, every team needs that segment of it. And um, if that's what we have to do and we're good at it, well... They're good at everything else, and that's why we all get along, and it works out well. So we really planned ahead with, with Mari Nostrum. Every single one of the expansions, every single item that has been opened, we learned from FIEF. We learned where in FIEF we were trying to get um, 15000 and we were hoping we'd hit a hundred, and at $250,000, we are like, oh, my God, our heads were spinning. And we were just adding things that we had in the plan but had not fully developed yet, like we have for Mari Nostrum. Mari Nostrum is 100% play-tested, guaranteed to work. And if we do not hit these stretch goals in uh, on the Kickstarter, we will add these to a purchasable expansion, which people can pay extra for in the future in their game stores and buy directly from their favorite retailer. Sounds good to me, sir. Um, Uva, thank you very, very much indeed for, for being with me today. It's it's been absolutely fantastic and I cannot wait to see Marnost Room on, on the shelves. And hopefully I will get the chance to take a look at it at Spiel uh, when we have that uh, long overdue beer. Oh, I tell you what, and I'm looking forward to it. And thank you for your time. And I really want to apologize to the listeners I have a tendency of getting a little off track, as you know, and, you know, I'm sorry about the really boring finance part at the beginning and maybe sometimes my postulations. I mean, when I'm sitting here, I'm animated. I don't just animate my voice. My arms are going all over the place. I'm as if we're sitting here face to face right now. I'm like putting my hands to the screen because I just can't sit still. Um, and I get excited about this. And I really appreciate your support and all pledgers support and trust me we make so many mistakes and our, our our supporters are always so understanding and that's why we do everything we can to always make it right and give you a product 
like you a little better than what you're expecting. And so I thank you again, Paco, for doing such a great game and, uh, thing and for helping businesses, small businesses like ourselves, succeed and, and be successful. Because if it weren't for programs such as yourselves and, and generous listeners that you have, we couldn't do what we do. I mean, it's it's just that's the pure economics of it. But you know, so well, thank you. That leaves the thing with me. I am not interested in helping your business. I'm interested in helping you because it is you I like, regardless of what what business you're in. And since you what? are one of the most delightful people in the gaming industry, my friend, you will forever have my support on anything you do. And we're related, as people know now. So. Exactly. That counts a little too, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now I just have to learn Spanish a little better. <laughs> oh, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure I can help you with that one. Aprendo español ahora, pero entiendo mucho, pero no puedo hablar. Pero mi R, mi R es muy español, no alemán. Your non-Spanish speaking, my R is the worst Spanish R ever, because in German we roll it really deep. And especially in South America, where I grew up, everybody always called me Pan Blanco Uva, because <laughs> white bread Uva, because my <laughs> R's were the worst. So, <laughs> my friend, practice makes perfect, and I'm sure you will get there. Thank you once oh, again for being with so me. <laughs> you have a great week, and thanks again. Thank you for listening. Hosting and production for this podcast have been by Paco Garcia and the music's been composed by Kev Adsent. We would love to hear from you. Feedback and your questions are always welcome and you can email us at podcast.gmsmagazine.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at GMS Magazine. And we are also on Facebook and Google+. I'm very, very happy to talk to you. Remember to subscribe to the GMS Magazine podcast channels in iTunes and give us a review or two and a rating, please, and it's truly appreciated if you do. For more quality shows, remember to listen to other rooms like the RPG Room, the Interview Room and the Board Game Room and more rooms that might be coming very soon indeed. But, friends, until the next time, let the games continue.